TED Audio Collective. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. We wanted to create a workplace where even Mondays don't suck. <laughs> this is Ville Hotu. He's the CEO of Vincent, a Finnish software company. Four years ago, one of our software engineers sent me a calendar invite to his annual salary review with the subject, promote John to CEO. <laughs> and I thought, why not? What's the worst thing that could happen? And I made him a CEO for a day with one task. He told that engineer he could make one decision that would improve the workplace for everyone. And he will have unlimited budget to do so. He thought I was joking. But when he realized I'm not, he discussed with a lot of employees, did a lot of research and analysis. When it came time to announce his decision, he looked me in the eyes and told me we will be ordering beanbag chairs to the lounge. And I happen to hate beanbag chairs. Wow. Was his goal really to make life better for everyone or to make life just a little bit worse for you? <laughs> I trusted him to make a big decision, and he trusted me back not to judge his decision. And that's how it got started, and we call it CEO of the day. And we've been running it uh, four years now. They do really think about what benefits us all as a group. What's been implemented since then? Uh, there's a monthly Fun Friday dinner, company-paid movie tickets, Cortex jackets, a lot of educational things too, like an Audible subscription, and we also have a home cleaning service. That's brilliant. It is. When the CEO announces his decision or her decision, there's a cape and a crown that the CEO will wear, <laughs> making sure he or she is the, uh, the person in control. They are making one lasting decision for the company, so it, it's major. And that doesn't scare you at all? It absolutely horrifies me. <laughs> uh, but there's always excitement on my side as well. It seems like freedom is a tug of war. Employees pulling for more of it, managers pulling for less. But it doesn't have to be. If you reimagine what flexibility looks like, it can benefit both people and organizations. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck even on Mondays. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to help us rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, rethinking flexibility at work and making it practical. Thanks to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode.
One of the silver linings of the pandemic is that many of us got a taste of what it's like to have more freedom at work. I've enjoyed freedom from small talk. I don't care what the weather is. My kids got the freedom to do impressions of me in my Zoom class. As COVID restrictions have lifted, flexibility is now the number one request that employees are making from employers. But the flexibility conversation has focused too narrowly on remote and hybrid work. We're going to dig deeper into that later this season. But for now, it's not enough to discuss where we should work. What we need is a broader conversation about what flexibility means. For generations, people have wanted more than freedom to choose their place of work. They've wanted to choose their purpose, people, and priorities. Not just where they work, but what they do, who they collaborate with, and when and how much they work. Let's start with being able to choose your purpose and people. Long before the pandemic, some workplaces built that kind of freedom into their DNA and figured out how to make it productive. I have a Taylor 414CE-R guitar. I'm going to first tune it to standard tuning. That's E-A-D-G-B-E. This is John Spencer Jr., an engineer turned innovation consultant. He started learning the guitar last year. There are a lot of three-chord strumming songs that are great for beginners. This is one. John's relationship with guitars started back in the mid-1990s when he was working at W.L. Gore, the manufacturing company best known for Gore-Tex. You know, the waterproof jackets and gloves. One day, an engineer in Gore's medical products group, Dave Myers, was trying to get rid of the grit on his mountain bike cables. So he put Gore-Tex on them, and it worked. It made him wonder whether Gore-Tex could also repel the grit from human hands that causes guitar strings to lose their tone. So he tried it. I met Dave in November of 95, and we said, you know, we ought to play around with this, but this string isn't, isn't good enough. What was wrong with existing guitar strings on the market at that time? Frankly, from a good guitar player, after about 10 hours, the string is terrible. For an amateur musician, they might last until they break the strings at six months. Wow. So it, it can vary. I didn't realize they, they had such a short <laughs> shelf life. We were essentially trying to make a string that will last at least three to five times longer in sound than a conventional guitar string. That was the goal. So we started playing around and we recruited other people to help us for the next six months develop an improved guitar string. While this might sound like a typical process to create a new product, it's not. See, this experiment was happening on the side of their regular full-time work, but during work hours. It's what Gore calls dabble time. Gore allows employees to work on whatever they want for about 10% of their work time, as long as it doesn't interfere with their regular job, and as long as the side project has the potential to contribute to the company's goals. Gore wasn't in the music business, so guitar strings were uncharted territory. But the company had a track record for entering new markets. They hadn't been in the dental floss market either, until they created Glide Floss, which became a big hit. John had led the launch of Glide Floss, but when he got involved in guitar strings, there were some skeptics. Some people were suggesting after about a year that maybe we were just trying to do something that was physically impossible. 
you know, how do you coat a vibrating string and not affect vibration? I think everyone thought it would take like six months because a lot of people would hear the strings and say, these are great. So it took us three tests with 5,000 musicians each to be convinced that we had the right product. That took a year and three months just to do that. It sounds crazy. Letting employees work on a project that might not go anywhere for over a year that they pick themselves? Who does that? In a traditional company, you'd be looking more for an approval. Within Gore, I don't think I ever asked for approval. It's just nobody said no. Instead of hearing no, the people in our team heard not now. So you'd go back to it. Gore has 11,000 people. But since they launched in 1958, the whole company has been organized into self-managed teams. People have an unusual amount of freedom to pick what projects they work on and even who they work for. So freedom really is about the idea that I am free to develop who I am, what I do, and how I do it. Jill Payne is the leader in Gore's medical products division. She joined the company from Nike seven years ago. I was coming out of a consumer products industry. I had never worked in this particular kind of manufacturing. Gore's flexible approach meant that she had some time and space to figure out how she could contribute. Still, it took her a minute to adjust to the new way of working. My first realization was like, who's my boss? What am I supposed to deliver and by when? And, and if I don't deliver it, are they going to fire me? And the guidance that I got at that point in time was like, just get to know people. Get to know who we are. Get to know what we do. Wow. It's flexible, but it's not totally chaotic. So when I was in my Nike world, I was driving in like a red Ferrari, driving 100 miles an hour. There's an onboard voice that would come in, right, and sort of help direct you. There was a GPS system that was telling me everything that I needed to know and needed to do. Go this way, go that way. I then step into Gore, picture a 1960s refurbished, restored Land Cruiser. It's beautiful, but it's analog. There's no GPS system. You're not on the highway anymore. You might've been given a map. You might've been given a compass, but it's like a totally different experience. Yeah, so I was uncomfortable for sure. More than half a century ago, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin made a classic distinction between these two kinds of freedom, negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty is having freedom from, freedom from constraints and interference by other people. Positive liberty is freedom to, freedom to pursue opportunities and shape your own destiny. The problem with collaborating is that it often undermines both types of freedom. Managers, colleagues, clients, they're constantly creating constraints and limiting opportunities. But Gore has figured out how to offer people more flexibility while still meeting organizational objectives. They do this through bounded flexibility. That's freedom within constraints. I grilled John and Jill about how they make it work, and I came away with three principles. First, when you exercise your freedom to join a project or a team, you're expected to make a commitment. They are individual choices that we make to be committed to a body of work. 
So when you go to introduce yourself, you don't say, I am the, you say, my commitment is. And if you make a commitment, you keep it. And if you don't keep your commitments, you probably won't be happy at the company. Second, flexibility isn't granted. It has to be earned. Yeah, it's not something that you walk in the door and you have. People have to learn to know you and that you are uh, have decent judgment and that you're a good communicator. How do I earn it? I think it comes back to that commitment principle. You make a commitment and you keep it. And if you don't keep your commitments, you haven't established that credibility that you've, you've earned the trust. Third, you have the freedom to take risks as long as you keep the company above the waterline. Waterline, this is the trust piece meets healthy risk-taking. So the idea is that I can take risks that are not going to sink the ship. The moment you start to think it's going to have real impact on the business, start reaching out. You can't make that choice alone. Which means you're going to talk to people and communicate before you do anything that could affect the reputation of the company. That works everywhere. They have freedom too. They can explore new ideas and projects. They also have freedom from. There's no interference by leaders. As long as they commit to advancing Gore's goals, communicating their progress, and raising a flag if they're nearing the waterline. When you begin, someone doesn't say to you, you spend 30 hours doing this and you can have 10 hours dabble. Like it's not that formal. Many of our longstanding businesses or even things that are in work today have come out of dabble time. We used our dabble time to work on guitar strings. The founding people of the Elixir Strings all had exceptional track records. So we all had the freedom to do more than probably less experienced people on a project at Gore. The guitar strings didn't work out as planned the first year, but they still got to keep their freedom because they had a strong sponsor, a more senior person who acts as a mentor. The sponsor really is the idea that someone else in the organization feels deeply accountable for your success. You get a starting sponsor, someone you begin with, who starts you off on the journey. And then the idea is that you're supposed to break up at some point in time and go out and find yourself your own sponsor. A good sponsor at Gore feels a commitment to the person that they sponsor that goes far beyond a manager relationship at a traditional company. They celebrate your success, they, they help you learn, they coach you, they, they hook you up with other people that can help you grow and learn. John and the rest of the team continued working on the guitar strings undisturbed on the side. They just had to give updates, good or bad, to their sponsor, Richie Snyder, who trusted the team. If it sounds like chaos, it's really not, because there's a lot of communication that goes on. In my office was 30 feet from Richie, and I talked to him for an hour every day, probably. Also, what comes with flexibility is the uh, willingness to communicate bad news. I mean, there was a lot of bad news when we were doing tests. And if you don't share the bad news quickly, you won't have credibility, and then you won't get flexibility. I had regular communication with Bob Gore about this project. And when we did our business reviews, Bob Gore was there. I mean, he's the chairman and CEO of the company, and he's attending a review about a new guitar string. They didn't know what to call that guitar string. One of the team members said a great name for coding would be Bob's Magic Elixir. 
in the definition of elixir, uh, one of them is, is a substance that prolongs life. And we're like, holy cow, this is amazing. Turning creative ideas into successful innovations depends on having the freedom to talk with people who know things you don't. But lately, that's been a struggle for many of us. Take recent research at Microsoft. During the pandemic, when over 60,000 Microsoft employees were forced into remote work, their professional networks became more static and more siloed. They had fewer new connections between people and fewer new bridges between teams. That's a problem because we get more creative ideas from our weak ties than our strong ties. Weak ties bring us fresh perspectives. That's what John did. He had experience bringing dental floss to market, and he was able to bring critical knowledge to turn Dave's vision for guitar strings into a viable product. After a year and a half, they finally released their Elixir strings, and an idea that had grown from a medical products group made a big dent in the music industry. It took another 15 months for the string to become number one in the market for acoustic guitars. I mean, that's insanely fast. <laughs> it's fast. But I tell you, during that 15 months, <laughs> it didn't feel fast. It's really hard for me to imagine something so successful coming out of a bunch of people just dabbling. Yeah. But, you know, the reality is uh, when we say dabble, you know, by the time I made a full-time commitment to Elixir Strings, I was probably working almost full-time on Elixir Strings, as well as my other job. What started as a side project grew as his other responsibilities shrank. And it wouldn't have happened at all if they hadn't earned freedom to dabble and freedom from interference up the hierarchy. Instead of a ladder, Gore has a lattice. It just means you can go and talk to anybody and you can get anybody's help. Well, at a traditional company, you can't do that. You're going to have to go through your manager. In a standard organization, if you're looking for a piece of information, and actually the best person to answer that might be the CFO. And then you think, oh, well, I have to ask my, my boss. And maybe somewhere along the way, people are like, you're not wasting the CFO's time on that question. Or maybe you do get insight, 10 people translate it back to you, and you're like, oh, I've got a follow-up question. Right? Like, so the information flow is really broken. But not at core. You can reach out to anyone in the organization. There's no one that's sort of off limits. And because of that, you can flow information back and forth in the way that you need to. You may not have dabble time in your workplace, but you can still give people the chance to earn choices about what they work on and who they work with. I once worked with an organization that gave people the chance to swap projects. If you have multiple projects that need to be done, you can always ask people if they have preferences about which one they take on. And think about flexibility as a reward. If you excel on your current project, we give you more leeway to pitch your next one and recruit your ideal team. So we've covered two of the key elements of flexibility, purpose and people. But what about the third one, priorities? Even if you've been able to shape your own project and team, that team can also constrain your freedom by making demands of you at all hours. So how do you give people flexibility to control their own time and set their own priorities without undermining performance? More on that after the break. I've always cared a lot about helping people advance in their careers, helping people find their voice. 
Meet Andre Santalo. And now I was able to do that type of work and also focus on, in, in on the content space as well. As the global head of community and creators at LinkedIn, Andre helps people share their insights. His passion for helping people find their voice is rooted in his own college experience. He couldn't afford to go to school out of state unless it was on a scholarship. I actually kind of helped build my voice because I had to show up to inter- scholarship interviews. I had to write a lot of essays. And actually, I remember this process being pretty formative in how I identified myself to other people. I grew up in a pretty conservative, cultural, like human household, Hispanic household. I identify as a gay man. I had my own challenges coming out that way. And if I didn't have someone else tell me that, hey, you have a voice, here's how you build it up, I absolutely would not be where I am today. It's that kind of support that inspired Andre to make a career out of enabling others to find and amplify their own voices. My job is to help more people share what they already know and what they already do best. I say this a lot to people in my network who are on LinkedIn and maybe they don't share or don't contribute. And I say, you have a ton of information and powerful things that you can say that's going to benefit you and, and the broader community. That's what I do. A big part of Andre's mission is to support the creator economy. To put it simply, the creator economy is the ability to put your voice out there, to create content regularly, to build an audience of people who are consuming that content, to then turn that into a community, and then eventually be able to actually build a business or even monetize that community. Andre works closely with plenty of creators on LinkedIn. One who stands out is Kevin Perry, a stop-motion animator. Kevin Perry has been creating content about what he does. He just started doing behind-the-scenes content of, hey, I'm going to turn this desk into a banana. It's not to make you laugh, it's to show you that I can do that, that this is a skill, and that I use this in my day-to-day. The creator economy is about more than creating content. It's about creating opportunity. And there are a variety of tools on LinkedIn that can help creators achieve that opportunity. We work with Kevin a lot. He said to us, you know, 10,000 eyeballs on LinkedIn are 10,000 people to potentially hire me. The ability to communicate is always in demand. Showing potential clients, employers, or colleagues that you have a story to tell or an insight to offer can open unexpected doors. Once it clicks and once you start doing it enough times, it becomes easier and easier and it, it just compounds. And before you know it, you are regularly not just sharing content, but you're contributing to conversations, you're learning. There's so much learning that can be done through just the art of sharing and and writing. Before you know it, you have an audience, a community, and who knows, maybe before you know it, you have a business. This is an $104 billion economy. There's over 50 million creators, and I think we're just scratching the surface there. Every day, millions of people turn to LinkedIn to learn and talk about the things that matter in their lives, driving meaningful conversations that lead to opportunity. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. A recent survey of over 10,000 knowledge workers found that even more than working from home, people want flexible hours. More than which location to work, they want freedom to decide what times they work. That's not just more time off. It's also more control over when they're off. But when you're working with other people, they need your time. The whole point of interdependent work is that you need to have those interactions. Meet Leslie Perlow. She's a leading expert on work time at Harvard Business School. I study what do people do all day? How do you spend your time? Who do you interact with? 
And what are the implications of this for your work, for your life outside of work, and for your organization? What got you interested in how people spend their time? My dad, who still holds a grudge against me, came to visit me in my first year out of undergrad working in consulting. And it was a Monday. It was a legal holiday. And I had to do some project. I couldn't hang out. And he couldn't believe he'd come across the country to hang out with me. And you're like, I'm out. No more consulting. I quit. (laughs) No, no. I made it my mission in life to try to understand it and see if it could be different. It seemed like it was possible that we could be getting the job done in a much more efficient and effective way. And also, we were losing a lot of women uh, at more senior levels. And if we could change this, uh, would we be able to deal with a retention issue? Leslie has found that in teamwork, there are limits on how much freedom you can give people to set their own hours. But you can still give people control by making commitments up front to a schedule. You can only have so much flexibility. What you really need is some amount of predictability as well. Leslie divides predictable time into three categories. Quiet time, collaboration time, and everyone's favorite, time off. Quiet time is the heads-down space people need to do their best analytical and creative work. Time free from emails, meetings, and meetings that should have been emails, which for me are most meetings. In one of her first studies, Leslie worked with software engineers. They were coming in early, staying late, and working weekends to finish their work. Critical work they couldn't find the uninterrupted time to do during their regular hours. People were going from meeting to meeting, from interruption to interruption. Then you push aside what you're doing until your work becomes urgent. And we end up sort of jumping from one fire into the next instead of really effectively managing our time. And so the question was, could we put some quiet time inside the normal workday if we could understand when it's okay with you, for me to interact with you, that it wouldn't be an interruption. And once we start to recognize that, then we can plan accordingly. How did the engineers react when you introduced this idea that they were going to have bounded time to focus? The engineers loved me and the managers wanted to throw me out. But they finished the experiment and the engineers succeeded in launching their product on time, which was pretty much unheard of in their division. Blocking quiet time had clear benefits. The benefits were that individuals were better able to get their work done. The team was more effective at working together. That's pretty good. And yet, despite documenting those benefits, you could not get the managers to stick to the policy. Well, I couldn't make the deep cultural change. Why does this require so much cultural change? Certainly at that point, we were valuing the worker who would do whatever it took to get the job done and do whatever I asked whenever I asked it. That notion was at odds with, I could leave them alone for a few hours. Research suggests that limiting meetings to afternoons can give people uninterrupted time to progress on their tasks in the mornings, which means they're more likely to focus in the afternoon meetings because they're not multitasking. Blocking out quiet time is one step toward giving people control over their time. But giving people autonomy to get work done doesn't guarantee that they'll be able to take time off. That was Leslie's second step. She had employees and teams set a goal together for time off, For example, no work on Tuesday evenings. The goal has to be, where's the pain point? So for some organizations, the pain point is truly about working long hours. It's not important that it's everybody's first choice. Just find something that's shared and doable and that we can work together. 
Once the goal is chosen, the team has weekly check-ins. So every week I want you to look back and say, where were their breaches and what can we learn from that? These discussions are often where the magic happens. Meeting the goal right away isn't the goal. What matters most is recognizing and talking about the existing processes that are causing you to work overtime, and then discussing how to change those processes. These conversations can also reveal that people are overworked and teams are understaffed. The goal creates the legitimacy to talk about things that you probably never talked about before. It's just a catalyst. In the old days, you would just suck it up and do it. But now you have to raise your hand and say, I'm not going to be able to take my night off. If we can then set in motion a very productive process of working together to achieve that, then we become an effective team. But it's about working together and creating the learning team such that we can then have the things that work best for us. In her experiments, Leslie finds clear benefits of committing to predictable time off. So I see profound effects in individual well-being. They have more control of their lives and also retention. People come up to me and say, it's made my life more manageable. It also makes the work better. Effectiveness is not just that they got the time off, it's that they had the productive conversations and it evolved into something much more in terms of them being able to then feel better about the flexibility they had in their lives. It's hard to imagine this working in an organization that doesn't value well-being or quality of life or family or people having a life outside work. I think the reason this has been so successful in organizations is because it is effective for the bottom line. And in the organizations where it's been sustained, it's not that they care or don't care about the individual's well-being. It's that they care about the bottom line and actually caring about well-being is enabling them all the more to be effective. The pandemic has shifted how Leslie thinks about the best approach to having time flexibility, especially when people are working from home, but also as they begin to drift back into the office, even if it's only part-time. Which brings us to the third type of time, collaboration time. When everyone was co-located, the problem was everyone was interrupting each other. In the pandemic world, when everyone is virtual, then the barrier to all those kinds of interruptions are so high that they're not happening. And we had plenty of heads down time. What we didn't have was collaborative interaction time. So organizations built in time for that. They tried to have virtual rooms and they tried to use Slack. And now we have a whole new problem, which is in the hybrid slash Uh, virtual world, I would encourage people to focus on figuring out when do we need to be accessible to each other. We also have to start thinking about who do we want to have those creative collisions, because it matters who's going to be invited to these water coolers. It isn't spontaneity that drives learning and innovation. What matters is having informal interaction with people who have different experience and expertise. Creativity does not have to be a collision. There's nothing stopping us from structuring that unstructured interaction, from planning more hallway encounters. In one experiment, salespeople's revenues climbed by 24% for several months. What moved the needle? They were randomly paired up to exchange advice weekly over lunch. And in the summer of 2020, a simple intervention left remote interns more satisfied and more likely to get a return offer. All it took was randomly assigning them to virtual water coolers with senior managers. Just a monthly half-hour check-in was enough to open the door to learning, mentoring, and trust. What if more leaders hosted virtual office hours and more teams agreed on when they'd be accessible? 
Everybody's day needs to have quiet time, collaborative interaction time, and time off. Because if we could set those hours, then I have all the flexibility to decide when do I want to do my individual work and when do I want to take my time off. In your team, have you had a conversation about when you're going to take time off? Have you blocked out separate quiet time and collaboration time? A flexible and autonomous style of working is not for everyone. People have to have certain strengths, or at least be open to developing them. Here's Jill from Gore again. If you are someone who looks to extrinsic motivation, it's hard. That was part of my rewiring. I really became dependent on a boss telling me, you're doing a great job. Keep at it. You have to be self-motivated. There is some level of chaos and ambiguity that happens. So if you're uncomfortable in that, it's going to be challenging. Things can take longer, right? You have to believe that they're going to get done better. And you've got to have a certain amount of trust in both yourself and the organization to make it work. Because if you are uncertain about that, then it's uncomfortable and you spend a lot of time stewing about it. The pushback I hear from leaders pretty frequently is, yeah, I get that my employees want more autonomy. That's good for them, but it's bad for the organization. What would you say to those leaders? Oh, I would really disagree. This has been a really seven-year journey to actually get to this place where I feel it so deeply that I would say, I just don't see it. I can almost can't see the world through that lens anymore. So I believe in the idea of this sort of self-managed teams in many environments. It brings out the best in people. Sure enough, extensive evidence shows that giving people autonomy is the best way to support intrinsic motivation. And that when people have choices about what they work on and when they do it, they're more satisfied, effective, and committed. The idea that like there are certain places where command and control, just get in the box and do that thing, I think you have limited what the biggest source you have, which is your people, you've limited for them what they can actually bring to the table. Part of the design, the original thinking of the organization is not only trying to solve really advanced material science problems, but is also trying to bring to life this human spirit that's helping people on this path towards their own version of self-actualization. And I firmly believe that those founding principles of giving people room to do their best creates a totally different kind of connection that you're going to have to the organization, the amount of discretionary energy you're going to put towards something is much higher, and your ability to actually use your full brain and your full capacity to put towards something is so much greater. Giving people more freedom sounds like a risk, but squashing their freedom is also a risk. Talented people are the first to walk away, and their promising ideas will never see the light of day. Flexibility doesn't have to be about giving up control and just letting people run wild. It's about giving people more control over their time and more avenues to run with ideas that will advance your mission.
next time on Work Life. Oftentimes, part of the reason why pitches get passed on is that they're not workable as they're pitched. It doesn't mean that the pitch is dead or that the thing that you're trying to do is dead. It means you probably need to do it a little bit different. How to get your foot in the door with a great pitch and what to do if the door slams shut. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Constanza Gallardo, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ban Ban Chang, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Miri Jesutasen. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Leighton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Morgan Stanley, ServiceNow, and UKG. For their research, gratitude to Nick Bloom on hybrid and remote work, Long Chi Yang and colleagues on static and siloed networks, Mark Granovetter and Marcus Bayer on the strength of weak ties, Nancy Katz on interdependence in teams, Han Chang Kao on multitasking in meetings, Jason Sandvik and colleagues on sales lunches, Yavor Bojanov and colleagues on virtual water coolers, Erica Patal and colleagues on intrinsic motivation, and Stephen Humphrey and colleagues on autonomy and performance. Seems like if Spider-Man worked at Gore, uh, he'd have an uncle saying, with great freedom comes great responsibility. <laughs> you have to take that seriously. Yes, that's a fabulous analogy. That is exactly right.